Two Sundays ago, you know, we broke from our series in Revelation uh, to discuss the doctrine of justification, and part of the reason for that was uh, I needed more time to study Revelation 12 and 13. Uh, hopefully we'll get to go next Sunday. Uh, but I also saw the need to equip you on, on justification, uh, especially the ground of justification, uh, which we looked at last week. Uh, in God's court of law, on what grounds will you stand? In God's court of law, on what grounds will you stand? And we saw from several places in Paul's letters, you will not stand on your works... You will not even stand on your faith. It is Christ which faith looks to. He is our ground on which we stand. When united to Jesus by faith, God credits to us the righteousness of Christ. It's called the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Christ is not only our pardon, He is also our perfection. And on that basis, God declares us righteous. That's justification. Today, I want to discuss how that justification relates to good works. If justification isn't based on your works then do works matter at all? I fear that some profess faith in Jesus because they want the benefits of Jesus' righteousness, but quite apart from the transforming loveliness of His person. You know, you might turn them to a command in Scripture and they will object with legalism. Or, maybe they don't object at all when they hear commands from Scripture, but they never do them either. They're what James would call hearers only. So that was a fitting prayer that Stephanie prayed a while ago, that we not be hearers only. I want to show you why that kind of thinking... Uh, is wrong from James chapter 2 where we could have Jesus' benefit of righteousness but apart from a transforming union with Him. I want to show you why that kind of thinking is wrong from James chapter 2. James 2 has challenged the church for centuries. And that's because Paul in Romans 3.28 says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And yet, James asserts in verse 24, that we'll read in a minute, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so the question is, does James contradict Paul when it comes to justification and and works? And the short answer is no. The context will prove that James and Paul agree they're simply using the same words with slightly different meanings to address different problems. And in the process, we will learn how justification and imputation uh, 
relate to good works. And basically, the main idea is this. True, justifying faith necessarily produces works. True, justifying faith necessarily produces works. All right, let's read the passage starting in verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way... Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So let's start with the context here. Verses 14 to 17 introduce this important contrast between between saving faith and then a phony faith claim. Saving faith and a phony faith claim. To this point in the letter, James has characterized the nature of saving faith. Uh, It perseveres in various trials, chapter 1, verse 3. It stays devoted to Jesus instead of wavering, chapter 1, verse 6. Faith works itself out in neighbor love by showing mercy, chapter 2, verse 1 and following. And so by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 14, we kind of know we've gotten glimpses of what saving faith is like. True faith comes with a transformative union with Jesus. Faith unites us to Jesus, who, living in us, produces a resolve to do God's will. And then, by contrast, there is the phony faith claim. Verse 14, uh, we see, someone says he has faith, but he lacks 
works, right? He lacks the works that prove he's not actively trusting in Jesus. That's why James implies that such a faith cannot save. It's altogether dead. You see, when, when, there's, no, when there's no vital connection to the true vine, the branch does not bear fruit. It's dead. James then sharpens his point further in verses 18 to 19. He anticipates this objection from somebody. Someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. And the objection assumes that works and faith can can be separated. But James exposes the error in verse 18. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. And so faith here is necessarily proving itself in in works. He's, He's not arguing that works earn salvation. And we know this because James has already stated that God saved us by His own gracious initiative. Chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Of His own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So these are not works that earn salvation. They are works that exhibit salvation. These external works that James has been talking about, like steadfastness under trial in chapter 1, verse 12, or works like compassion for the orphan and the widow in chapter two, Uh, 1 verse 27, or works like meeting the needs of your brothers and sisters in chapter 2 verse 15. All of these external works are demonstrating an internal reality. So faith and works, they are not equal, but they are inseparable. It's inseparable from the new nature we possess in union with Jesus. To claim genuine faith while lacking works, is so backwards that James even calls it demonic in verse 19. So what then does this broader context show us? The context shows us what James means by the little phrase, faith alone, in verse 24. Saving faith is never alone with respect to works. Saving faith inevitably works. Now, to support this, James then gives two Old Testament examples, uh, Abraham and Rahab, and in both examples we're told that they were justified by works. Now, what does that mean? I think five observations are crucial to understand James's argument. One, God imputes His righteousness by faith apart from works. God imputes His righteousness by faith apart from works. And you're thinking, where are you getting that in this passage? James seems to say just the opposite in verse 24. But look more closely at verse 23. James quotes from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or imputed to him 
as righteousness. Crucial to note is that Abraham didn't work for this righteousness. By simply trusting in God's promise, God counted to Abraham a righteousness that wasn't inherently Abraham's. God gave his own righteousness to Abraham by faith alone. Now, why take Genesis 15, 6 that way? Because that's the way Paul takes it in Romans chapter 4. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. He quotes also from Genesis 15, 6. Now, Paul's contemporaries love to use Genesis 15 to show that, re- that Abraham was righteous in himself. But Paul draws from the bookkeeping language of Genesis 15, 6 to make a much different point than his contemporaries. He uses Genesis 15, 6 to show that God justifies the ungodly. That's why, that's why Paul's using it. He justifies the ungodly. In terms of righteousness, Abraham's bank account is zero. He's ungodly. But by trusting in God who justifies the ungodly, Abraham's faith is credited for righteousness. His faith connects him to God's promise of righteousness now revealed in Jesus Christ. And James is echoing the same truth here. By quoting Genesis 15, 6, uh, uh, James builds on the truth that God justifies the ungodly by faith alone. Now hold that in your mind as we move to a second observation. Justifying faith is presupposed throughout James's argument. It's presupposed throughout James's argument. In verse 22, James says that faith was active along with Abraham's works. That doesn't mean Abraham was adding works to his faith. Rather, his faith stood in and behind the works. It's not a matter of faith and works. This is faith producing works. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 19, makes the same point. Abraham's faith had already linked him with God's promise before he offered up Isaac. That's important. Before he offered up Isaac. Hebrews eleven thirty one makes a similar point about Rahab with faith standing behind their works. Notice also what James says in verse 22. Faith was completed by works. Faith was completed by works or perfected. Faith, faith finds its full expression in the doing of works. Works are the observable fruit of justifying faith. Paul and James are on the same page here. Now, Paul doesn't contrast saving faith from dead faith like like James, but regularly Paul shows that faith necessarily leads to obedience. What is the goal of his missionary work in Romans chapter 1, verse 5? It is the obedience of faith among all the nations. The obedience which is produced by faith among all nations. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he speaks about faith working through love. 
The only faith that justifies inevitably produces works. That's presupposed throughout James's argument here. Third, Christ's imputed righteousness has an inevitable external embodiment. Christ's imputed righteousness has an inevitable external embodiment. This was a huge connection for me. Look, uh, verse 23. James says that Abraham's works fulfilled Genesis 15, 6. Abraham's works fulfilled Genesis 15, 6, which itself teaches that Abraham is justified by faith alone. So, follow the logic. Genesis 15, 6 teaches that justification is by faith alone. In justification, we then receive God's gift of righteousness by imputation, and that justification, apart from works, then reaches its full expression in doing good works. So, if you follow the Genesis narrative, Genesis 15 is where... Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Genesis 22 is when he offers up Isaac. Justifying faith, like we see in Genesis 15, 6, reaches its full expression in doing good works, like we see with Abraham in Genesis 22. So works are the inevitable embodiment of the justifying faith that links us to Christ's righteousness. Works do not increase the righteousness that we've already received in Christ. Rather, the works manifest the liberating power of Jesus' righteousness. To be linked to Jesus' righteousness is to be linked to Jesus himself, and Jesus changes people. He transforms us such as we want to do God's will. Therefore, works manifest the presence of justifying faith. Works manifest the presence of justifying faith. That's number four. When we think of justification, we normally think of God's legal declaration the moment we trust in Jesus. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. Several places in Paul. This, this legal declaration of you are righteous when you are converted. But justification can also carry a slightly different nuance. I'll give you one example that you're probably more familiar with. Matthew chapter 12, verse 37. Uh, he's talking to the Pharisees. And Jesus says, by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. He's talking about at the judgment, we will be held accountable for the words we spoke in this life. And Jesus says, by your words, you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus pushes this justification language to the future judgment, and in some sense, he relates it 
he relates that justification to our words, the words we speak to other people. So how do these two nuances fit together, this, this future justification and, and what we talked about two weeks ago in terms of the, the legal declaration? Well, they fit together in that one is the public display of the other. One is the public display of the other. Sometimes to justify refers to being shown to be righteous or proven to be righteous. In this case, good works are the inevitable external badge of internal justifying faith, to use the words of Greg Beal. They are the inevitable external badge of internal justifying faith. Other theologians like John Owen and Francis Turretin, uh, Jonathan Edwards, they would, they would distinguish between declared justification and manifested justification. So declared justification is when God declares a sinner righteous in the moment he trusts in Jesus. Manifested justification speaks to God giving proof that a person is righteous by their works. Their works become the necessary evidence of the internal justifying faith. Now, usually the Bible pushes manifested justification to the future judgment. And what's interesting, though, about James is that he sets the manifested justification within Abraham and Rahab's lifetime. It occurs when their faith works. So let me see if I can pull these various threads together. The only way a sinner can enter a relationship with God is by receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith alone. In that moment of trust, God makes the legal declaration righteous. He looks upon you, hidden in His Son, and He says, righteous. And then, standing right before God opens a whole new life where you can obey God and you want to obey God and you get help in obeying God. And then throughout the Christian's life, God looks on our works that are rooted in His liberating, justifying grace. He looks on these works and He says, this one is righteous. I declared her righteous when she believed in my son. And this work over here and that work over there, they're all miniature testimonies that my son lives in her and that justifying faith is present in her and active and will, in fact, vindicate her on the last day because she's hidden in my son. I hope that makes sense. Or let's put it like this. James' concern with justification is not to explain how someone gets right with God. That's Paul's concern in Romans 3. 
James's concern is to explain the inevitable results once someone is right with God. So it's the difference between gaining a right standing with God through works, which we should deny, and evidencing a right standing with God through works, which we should affirm. Those two are not contradictory. They are complementary. To use the words of the Reformed tradition, we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Uh, I once heard Kevin DeYoung illustrate it this way. Uh, let's see if we can get that on the screen. little sketch. Uh, if you're having a hard time following. So you got the top equation. Faith equals justification plus works. Paul is, uh, is trying to keep people from putting the W on the wrong side, which would be the second one. That's what you see in, James, in Romans chapter 3. Don't put the W on the other side. Faith plus works does not equal justification. Faith alone equals justification. And James, he would be the bottom one, James is trying to keep people from acting like works don't matter. Faith alone leads to justification, and the inevitable fruit of justifying faith is works. So the top one is the biblical teaching. All right, fifth, friendship with God is the goal of justifying faith. Friendship with God is the goal of justifying faith. Verse 23 says of Abraham, he was called a friend of God. What does it mean to be a friend of God? Chapter 4, verse 4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So to be a friend of God means that you're no longer part of the world and its system of evil and rebellion. God has brought you into fellowship with himself such that now you enjoy God and delight in his ways. This is the goal of justifying faith. The goal is not just forgiveness. It's not just freedom from punishment. The goal is to be God's friend. You were made to walk with your maker. You were made to enjoy his company. Is friendship with God the goal of your faith? Are you professing to know Jesus just to escape punishment? Are you a Christian just because you think it's the best philosophical answer? Are you a Christian just because you think it works better than the other options out there? It's certainly the best answer, but the goal isn't a mere mental assent to the truths of Christianity. The goal is friendship with God, knowing Him, and enjoying Him, and loving Him. And you know what happens when you're a friend of God? That friendship produces a life of good works that displays the person and worth of Jesus. So how does justification by the imputation of Christ's righteousness relate to works 
It is the cause of good works. It brings us into a friendship with God that inevitably produces good works. It grafts us into the true vine so that the branch bears fruit. Now, in all the theological discussion on justification in works, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of the works that James himself mentions in the passage. I don't want us to fall into that error. For James, theology is not kept in the abstract. It plays itself out in very tangible ways. He can tell what someone believes about faith and justification by the way they live and interact with other people. If you are declared righteous in Christ by faith alone, what kinds of works will your faith produce? Well, one example is compassionate care to brothers and sisters in need. Compassionate care to brothers and sisters in need. James mentions the poor in verse 15. Read it again. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? To claim to know Jesus and then refuse to treat other people like Jesus treated them is contradictory. A genuine faith union uh, uh, with Jesus will produce compassion to other Christians in need. So what is your faith producing towards Christians in need? Are you seeing the needs of brothers and sisters around you? Do you know those needs? Is there, a, is there a desire to know them? And then once you learn of those needs, how are you driven to, to meet those, those needs? James mentions the poor here, those who have some material needs, but we could broaden this to other things, couldn't we? Husbands and wives. When your spouse has needs, help with the house, help with the kids, help with some much-needed rest, help with counseling, helping with physical inabilities, whatever the needs are, do you actively look for them? Are you responding with compassionate care to meet those needs? And husbands, that's especially on us because we are explicitly commanded to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We've also got some younger Christians in our church. A couple of young men joined two Sundays ago, ages 15 and 13. Let me encourage you younger folks to look for ways you can help meet needs in your own home. Watch out for your brother or sister. Actively pursue ways uh, to help your parents. Let your family become a training ground for how you learn to meet needs in the church as you grow up in the faith. Others of you can be on the lookout for needs in the church. You know, parents with numerous children often need help in the pews. The elderly need people to reach out to them when they can't make it to church due to physical inabilities. 
Others with chronic illnesses, you know, they may need assistance with cleaning the home during the week. New mothers need naps, right? Compassionate care may just be going to sit with a baby while mom rests. Medical bills can sometimes be daunting for families to overcome. Whatever the case, justifying faith will produce in God's people compassionate care for those in need. Isn't it Jesus who first showed us compassion? Isn't it Jesus who who recognized our great need and then laid down His life to meet our greatest need? When we're united to Him and He's living in us, those kinds of things should be playing out in the body of Christ. Jesus didn't just send us a word. He didn't just send us a text message. He took on flesh and died to raise us up with Him. Another example of the the works faith produces. Radical obedience to God's Word. Radical obedience to God's Word. James uses Abraham offering Isaac in verse 21. Abraham had to trust God's promise even at the cost of his only son. Can you imagine? Abraham had to act on what he, he knew to be true. And we kind of get a glimpse of that, don't we, in Genesis 22. When they're going... When he's going up the mountain, he says, I'm taking my son up there with me and we will worship the Lord and we will come back. How's Isaac going to come back down the mountain with him? How how will we come back down the mountain if he's going to sacrifice Isaac? Well, he was trusting God's word. God will provide the lamb. He was, trusting my, he was trusting God's word. God will raise my son from the dead. Hebrews 11 says. Abraham believed God. And his faith produced this, this radical obedience. I don't know all the things God may set before you in coming days. It could be taking another job. So that you can tend to your family better. The way God's word says to It could be choosing to serve a family with immense needs and you're going to have to learn how to trust God to provide for you in helping to meet those needs. It could be standing up to an employer when you're asked to do something that contradicts God's Word. But like Abraham, where will you place your faith? I think we see throughout Abraham's life In all circumstances, God will come through for you. Again and again, He came through for Abraham. And in Christ, He will come through for all of the children of Abraham. Who are united by the Spirit. And then there's the example of Rahab. In Rahab, we find risk-taking action for God's kingdom. Risk-taking action for God's... Rahab was, was part of the Canaanite nation. This is in Joshua chapter 2. She lived in Jericho, a city that God was about to destroy for its rebellion. She also lived under the rule of a Canaanite king. And when the king learned that the spies from Israel had come to her, he sent and asked her to bring them out. 
But as the story goes, we see that Rahab's allegiance isn't to the king in Canaan. Her allegiance is to the king in heaven. She heard of God's kingdom coming. She heard of God's power. And even before the spies arrived, she had already put her faith in the Lord. She knew that the Lord showed steadfast love to all who feared Him. And it's this faith that led her to risk her neck for God's kingdom. What about you? What sort of risks have you taken to see God's kingdom advance? In the path of obedience, not all of us will do the very same things. Risk may mean serving in a context that's less comfortable. It may look like sharing the gospel with a coworker who's who's hostile to Christianity. Risk may be stepping into a leadership role. Risk may mean mission work overseas. It may mean staying here present and planting a church in Fort Worth and at great cost to yourself helping that church onto maturity. So risk will look different for all of us, but the aim will be the same, God's kingdom and Christ's glory above all. Now these are the examples that James sets before us in this passage. They're not exhaustive, but they certainly illustrate the sort of works that inevitably flow from a person justified by faith alone. Now for many of you, I see these good works. Uh, It's one of the joys of being a pastor here, is half the time, by by the moment I learn of a need, there's ten of you already meeting the need. Uh, I, I love shepherding this church, and I love seeing these works flow from you. I, I could think of the words of Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, I give thanks for your work of faith and your labor of love. Perhaps a few of you, though, are thinking, I'm, I'm not sure that I've seen much fruit in my life. I don't see these good works that James is describing here. In fact, when it comes down to it, I don't really enjoy a friendship with God like you're talking about. Perhaps you're thinking, I am that person who just wanted Jesus' benefits, but quite apart from Jesus. If that's you... Don't ignore the Spirit of God speaking through His Word. Don't resist the kindness of God showing you the state of your soul. God's justifying grace can transform anyone. God's justifying grace can transform anyone. Why do you you think He would choose Abraham and Rahab? What's going on there with, with these two? I mean, there were other examples. Why pick these two? The patriarch and the prostitute. The father of the Jews and a nobody among Gentiles. Why pick a man who's popular for his wealth and a woman who's known for her promiscuity? What's the point of hitting these two extremes? Because the gospel of justification can transform anybody. It can transform anybody's life. It doesn't matter where you come from or what ethnicity you belong to 
or what sins you have, or what mess you're currently going through, God's grace can reach you wherever you are, and He can transform you by the righteousness of Christ. God justifies the ungodly. And that's all of us. That's the point of the gospel. That's the point of grace. God's grace can change anybody through the gospel of justification by faith alone. By trusting in Jesus, all sins are forgiven through the cross. And all of Jesus' righteousness is yours. But when you trust in Jesus truly, He will not leave you the same. He will transform you into a person who shows compassion for those in need who obeys God's word at all costs, and who takes risks for His kingdom. It's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for the new birth by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that He would continue His good work of sanctification in our lives, making us more and more like our Savior. Fill us with His compassion for those in need. Give us confidence that in Christ... We can do all things. You are with us. You strengthen us along the way. For those who are really evaluating where they stand with you, please break through in their lives. Pour out your love upon them. Help them see the goodness of your grace with new eyes and help them to embrace it in full. As we come to the Lord's Supper, help us remember the good news of justification. And in remembering that good news, lead us into a life devoted to good works. In Jesus' name, amen.